Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and overpolicing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Richard! Richard! Oh, are we on? Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Welcome to Radio Free Canada. News, notes, and opinions for Monday, November the 22nd. And uh, welcome to the international headquarters for the patriarchy and toxic masculinity. Also, good afternoon to uh, everyone except Daryl Brooks, a piece of human excrement that plowed into a Christmas parade in Washica, uh, Wisconsin, killing, I believe, the, uh, the count is five and injuring more than 40. Brooks has been charged with murder. He's a lifelong criminal. And this uh, horrific incident, which unfolded Sunday, reminds me a lot of the 2016 Berlin terror attack, where an ISIS member killed 12 people by ramming his truck through a Christmas market. Do you remember that? Now, I don't know the motive of Daryl Brooks, but the, uh, the radical left-wing woke media, CNN, CBS, are claiming that he was fleeing the scene of another crime scene, possibly a knife, a knife fight. And uh, so this was an accident. In his panic to escape from another crime scene, he veered into this uh, parade of innocent people. I mean, why would he attempt? Think about this. Think about this. I think a five-year-old could figure this out. The 
the faulty logic here? Why would he attempt to evade possible arrest at one crime scene by driving to a highly populated area with an even heavier police force presence and then swerve into innocent civilians? Does that make sense? So this story is being memory hold by the media because he's an anti-white BLM supporter who happens to be black. And this doesn't fit the radical left agenda of demonizing white men with their privilege and their toxicity. White men, angry white men like Kyle Rittenhouse, who are supposedly the biggest threat to America. So we all need to forget about Daryl Brooks. They will make this story disappear. But this piece of garbage has a long history of violent crime. He's listed in the Nevada Sex Offender Registry. Oh, I guess uh, it's just a matter of time before Mark Ruffalo comes out to support him. That pedophile apologist who should never work again. But Hollywood is just um, chock-a-block full of uh, pedo apologists. Anyway, uh, Brooks is listed in the Nevada Sex Offender Registry for having a baby with an allegedly trafficking, uh, with a woman that he allegedly trafficked, a 16-year-old girl. He has a criminal history going back more than 20 years, aggravated battery, recently charged with numerous accounts of domestic abuse. What a sweetheart of a guy. Reckless endangerment, bail jumping, so get this, a couple of days ago, he's released on a $1,000 cash bail, $1,000. And the Milwaukee District Attorney, John Chisholm, is on the record bragging about reducing the number of individuals held on cash bail. This is called the Milwaukee Experiment. And Chisholm decided that his office would undertake initiatives to try and send fewer people like Barrett to prison. Now, even uh, the DA's office, Chisholm's office, is admitting Brooks' bail was set way too low. Yeah, do you think? Do you think? This mass murder is not only on Brooks, it's on Chisholm. And again, if Brooks were, were white, you know the radical left-wing media mob would be calling this a terrorist attack. Plain and simple. So... Don't be surprised when this story disappears so that the media doesn't have to confront inconvenient facts. Today's the 58th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Where were you, Brandon, when JFK was shot? <laughs> Your mother probably wasn't even born when JFK was shot, I'm guessing. Probably not. No. There you go. See, wow, 58 years ago. You know, it's, it's funny, though. It's true. If you, uh, if you ask anyone under the age of 60, where were you when JFK was shot? They probably think you're talking about the Oliver Stone movie. Yeah, when was that film shot? Uh, 1991. Uh, last night on my, uh, my other radio program over on uh, Zoomer Radio, AM 740, I interviewed the screenwriter of Oliver Stone's latest documentary. It's called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Uh, incidentally, it premieres tonight across Canada on Showtime, which is on Showtime. Is that on Crave TV? I think so. Yeah. 
the documentary is based on some of the revelations contained in the more than two million declassified documents on the JFK assassination, two million declassified docs. Did you know, did you know this, guys, that during the autopsy after JFK was shot, killed, the autopsy at the Bethesda Naval Hospital, they removed his brain and it was taken supposedly to the National Archives. And then a, a fairly famous American forensic pathologist by the name of Cyril Wecht, who was the first civilian who was allowed to examine the JFK evidence. He went to the National Archives to look at the brain. It was gone. JFK's brain is missing. And apparently it's been it's been missing since 1966. JFK's brain missing for 55 years. So I guess we shouldn't complain because Premier Ford's brain's only been missing for what, two? I went a long ways. I went a long ways to make that joke. Was it worth it? <laughs> uh, probably not. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, just a reminder, today at Queen's Park, MPPs are debating something called Motion 8. This is a motion to extend the provincial government's emergency powers, right? Bill 195. They want to extend those into March, which I wait a minute. Now, I thought the premier was promising that he that he was going to start removing covid restrictions by January. So why does he need an emergency? Why does he need emergency powers into March? Anyway, uh, please call your MPP, tell them to vote no. The vote happens tomorrow. They're debating today. The vote happens tomorrow. Ultimately, our MPPs, I would say 99.8% of them, care only about saving their own jobs. They don't care about us. They don't care about rights and freedoms. They're essentially selfish cowards. So they, But they will respond. They will stand up and take notice when you call their constituency office or their office at Queen's Park and you tell them to vote no or else they'll lose your vote. Then all of a sudden, they'll snap to attention. So please, everyone, uh, call your MPP, tell them to vote no on motion eight. Every phone call helps. Let's do this. Uh, when some of us in the media and some of you out there listening. Um, well, some of you, yeah, some of you out there listening were warning, maybe your friends and family a year ago, a year and a half ago, that it was conceivable at some point we could see quarantine camps or internment camps, COVID camps in this country. I remember um, uh, Randy Hillier brought this up at Queens Park when he asked about a federal government procurement document that he found, which seemed to suggest the feds were considering constructing quarantine camps. Oh, that's just a silly conspiracy theory. Well, as we speak, they're hauling positive cases and close contacts off to camps in Australia right now. Have a listen to this. Urgent action to escalate our response in these communities, immediately implementing a hard lockdown. That means residents of Injari and Rockhole no longer have the five reasons to leave their home. They can only leave for medical treatment in an emergency or if required by law. It's highly likely that more residents will be transferred to House Springs today, either as positive cases or close contacts. We've already identified 38 close contacts in Pinjari, and that number will go up. Those 38 are being transferred now. I contacted the Prime Minister last night. We are grateful for the support of about 20 ADF personnel, as well as army trucks, to assist with the transfer of positive cases and close contacts and to support the communities. There you go. 
that's the sound of the banality of evil. He's actually talking about carting people off to quarantine camps, positive cases and close contacts. You know, the only thing missing right now are the boxcars. Still think it's a conspiracy theory? Still think it couldn't happen here? Why wouldn't it happen here? Why couldn't it? Um, oh, I wanted to play this. This is bad. I'll, I'll save this for later, Brandon. This uh, absolute sociopath, of course, from Australia. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Talking about how if you support an anti-vax mandate, it doesn't matter what your vaccine status is. You're an anti-vaxxer as far as he's concerned. And talking about, you know, don't you dare give comfort and support to any anti-vaxxer. This is, this is the sound of a power drunk sociopath, but we'll save that for you a little bit later. Um, busy show. We're going to revisit, um, an earlier conversation with Billboard Chris, Chris Elston, currently touring the U.S. trying to raise awareness of a medical form of a child abuse. Children being placed on dangerous puberty blockers as a path to transitioning from one gender to another. And um, but up first, wait till you get a load of this story. The Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation District 20, I think that's in Halton Hills. They recently announced that the votes of non-white union members the votes for non-white union members should count more than white union members because racism. Jonathan Kay is uh, with the National Post, and he has that story coming up shortly. Stay with us. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. And I wish I was kidding about this story. The Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation District 20 recently announced that the votes of non-white union members will count for more than white union members. Why? Because racism. Jonathan Kay is a Canadian editor with uh, Quillette, host of the Quillette podcast and a regular op-ed contributor to the National Post and an author. Jonathan, welcome back to the program. How are you? Good. How are you? Very well. So uh, tell me a little bit about the OSSF, uh, sorry, OSSTF uh, District 20. Is that in the uh, Halton, Halton region? Uh, yeah, the Halton region was Burlington, Mississauga. Um, uh, it's the area west of Toronto. Okay, so this is the, te- the Secondary School Teachers 
uh, federation unit representing teachers in that district. It's and, the, bar- the bargaining unit for bargaining yeah, unit. yeah, exactly. Okay, and uh, so when did this? When did they actually make this decision that they were going to uh, weigh the votes differently? In other words, non-white union members, their vote would count more than white union members. So I just want to make sure that um, I'm being 100 percent accurate here. You're, you're, you're correct that non-white members will um, their votes will count extra. But the idea is that that triggers unless uh, you have at least 50 percent representation of people who aren't white. So if you had a meeting where 50 percent of the people were white, uh, weren't white and 50 percent non-white, this wouldn't trigger. But let's say you had a meeting where it was, say, 25 percent of the people there were not white. Their votes would count for triple the white the on a per vote basis the triple each white person so that the non-white votes once tripled would equal the voting power of the whites so and yeah uh anyway i just wanted to make <laughs> uh it doesn't trigger in all cases but uh if you had only 10 percent, then it would be a nine to one ratio so you can get some actually pretty pretty high ratios um and this was decided uh as I understand it, in the fall by the executive, and it was communicated to the rank and file on Monday at a meeting that took place uh, in a school, uh, Halton District, um, Halton District School Board. And and that meeting, things went <laughs> pretty wild. And, and some people at that meeting started sending me information because they were just outraged by what took place. Right. And uh, so there are how many um, people did you say are on the bargaining uh, team? Uh, I'm actually not sure uh, because the every uh, they're TBU um, um, bargaining units is is the acronym they use. And I actually don't know how many are are on. Uh, I think it might vary on a district by district basis. All told, there's uh, the OSSTF represents something like 60,000 teachers divided uh, among a couple of dozen districts. Right. And uh, so this decision, was there a vote on this decision or was it imposed by the executive uh, that votes would be weighted this way? So (laughs) this depends who you ask. But if you look at the slides that were presented, because I got the whole slide deck uh, that was printed and they made like a very fancy video. They actually spent a lot of money on convincing everybody that I wasn't racist. And uh, and so apparently uh, 68 percent of the voting members at the AGM. So there was an AGM um, and 68% of the voting members of the AGM agreed, as I understand, um, as a committee on a committee basis, uh, creating, created the motion and 68% of the voting members at the AGM agreed to it. Uh, this is the language that's contained on a slide that was presented to the rank and file. However, there was also a bunch of other slides um, anticipating pushback and convincing them, look, this isn't illegal. Technically, we're allowed to do this under the Constitution. Don't call it racism. Don't call it reverse racism. In fact, at the meeting, some people did call it reverse racism. Uh, and the the head of Section 19 actually um, accused them of engaging in uh, harassing uh, and harmful behavior by using that term. Uh, she sent out a uh, union-wide email basically um, calling out her own members for and suggesting they, they were racist for using the term reverse racism for <laughs> for opposing a plan that 
I think a lot of people would say, well, it's not reverse racism. It's just regular racism because you're counting some votes more than others. <laughs> but that's just my opinion. Right. And, and you've got the slide deck there on your or some of them anyway, on your on your uh, Twitter at John K, J-O-N-K-A-Y. So you've gone through the slides. I mean, is there a compelling argument to be made here that uh, non-white union members, their vote should count more than white union members? So if you if you look at the the deck and if you look at the video, there's a there's a five minute video that I, I have seen, but they have not publicized um, in the video. What they do is they step you through an example and the example they give is, look, there's this issue and this issue is important to people who aren't white and it's not as important to people who are white. And under traditional voting, the the resolution fails and they use kind of a cartoon to show the non-white people and their reaction is like they're very unhappy and grumpy. And the words they use in the video is they say the non-white people were, quote, not heard. And that's unacceptable. So the idea being if that there's a motion that's supported by a majority of non-white people and it so happens that the motion doesn't carry because of the numbers, that means people aren't listening to non-white people and that has to be rectified mathematically by giving more votes to non-white people. I think it's a ridiculous argument because there could be all sorts of reasons that, you know, you know, you and I could be on a committee and there could be 10 things to vote on. And I mean, you and I might be on the opposite side for reasons that have nothing to do with identity. It's just we take different views. And the idea that we have to like, you know, I happen to be Jewish. Does if I don't get what I want, does that mean the Jews word heard? Like it's, it's just kind of an, bizarre way to look at democracy. Uh, democracy doesn't guarantee that you're going to get what you want. It guarantees that um, you get what everybody else gets in the, the voting procedure. Um, they do make a strong case that it is legal. I think under Canada's constitutional scheme and human, research, uh, human rights scheme, people, employers, agencies have very broad latitude to take measures that are cast as for addressing inequities or past uh, racism. By the way, the term equity appears over and over and over in the document. And the case they make over and over is equal is not equity. So that's sort of this talking point that if somebody says, oh, but you're not weighting the votes equally, they say, ah, ah, we're not talking about equality. That's a word we don't discuss. We talk about equity. Uh, and I think one of the one of the slides specifically says uh, equality isn't equity. So it's there's kind of some <laughs> some word games going on. Oh, uh, that's for sure. Jonathan, we'll take a, a quick time. I'll come back and continue to discuss again. The Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation District 20 uh, has announced that votes of non-white union members will count for more than white union members under certain com uh, conditions. And uh, John Kay stays with us. We'll uh, continue to discuss this in three minutes. Stay with us. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. Welcome back. Jonathan Kay is with us. Contributor to the National Post and a Canadian editor with Colette, Quillette rather, host of the Quillette podcast. And uh, we're talking about this Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation uh, District 20 um, announcement, I guess, if you will, that the votes of non-white union members will count for more than white union members under certain conditions uh, because of systemic racism. So, uh, I mean, is this a an idea that is is gaining popularity? Are we likely to see this, uh, you know, spread from uh, to other um, OSS 
TFs uh, across across the province? Uh, I, I certainly think that one of the motivations for um, District 19 doing it, and by the way, I, I went and looked up while we were on break. Uh, an example they give is 20 people on the uh, bargaining unit. Um, and, and I also looked up the uh, uh, about 25% of people in the Halton district, according to Statistics Canada, are um, are non-white. Uh, so if, if you had 25% representation on the board, it would be similar to what we talked about. Their votes would count three times as much. But anyway, um, I think uh, what was likely was because all of these different districts have their own rules, uh, had this been popular in District 19, which is Halton District, uh, yeah, you probably would have seen it spread because all of these union leaders want to be seen as progressive and innovative. Uh, however, given the reaction, maybe they'll think twice about it. Uh, I can say that uh, in the aftermath of me reporting on this, they locked down their Twitter. They made their tweets protected. Um, they've they've started blocking their own teachers. Apparently, this is anecdotal, just various teachers have sent me screenshots. Uh, they're block, blocking their own teachers on social media, which is kind of crazy. Um, and I, I think if you're a union leader from another district, you might look at this example and say, uh, maybe we're going too far. And, and if I could just say, one of the upsetting things about this is that if you look at what happened at the Monday night meeting, this is a week ago, the meeting took place at a school in Halton district. And typically the way things work at these, if you have a meeting at the school, just because it's at the school, you know, it's still considered a union meeting and there's sort of, um, you know, uh, that's the priority in terms of where your loyalties lie. But what happened was people who liked this race-based resolution, when there was an argument about it and people use terms like reverse racism, they went running to the principal of the school and say, ah, these people who are using terms like reverse racism are violating your safe schools policy. And so you had union leadership tattling, snitching on their own members by weaponizing the on-site school policies, which are supervised by principals. And, you know, these are these are people who, who represent, you know, they're on the other side of the bargaining table uh, in many cases. And so the whole mission of the union to represent the interests of, the, of their of, of teachers in this case, uh, they're more interested in representing a certain ideological framework. And because the principal at this local school happened to, to share this ideological viewpoint, you had the union and the principal effectively in cahoots against the teachers themselves. Um, like why are teachers paying union dues to these people? Precisely. Precisely. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. This is an incredibly toxic uh, situation. I would say how are, uh, um, forgive my ignorance when it comes to how unions are organized, but how are um, these bargaining units um, put together? Are they? Are, do you have to to, uh, to to be elected to that position to be on the bargaining unit? Uh, so uh, I totally ignorant about how this works, but uh, generally, you know, the way at unions, uh, there's like a, a very small minority of people within a union that are are, are active and are interested in leading the union and. Um, most of the time they kind of get their way because, Hey, look, you know, if you're willing to do the work and that's fine. Um, I, I can tell you, I, I've received a lot of email from teachers since I've been tweeting about this and what they'll tell you, tell you is that the people who are often most motivated to be leaders within you, within you, the union 
often also happen to be the people who are most ideologically motivated in terms of like anti-racism and all this stuff, which by the way is very well-intentioned or at least it was originally, you know, everybody hates racism. There's, of course, <laughs> there's no, no one, <laughs> no one's arguing for racism. They just uh, think that some of these things go, go way at too far. At least not anybody you're going to have over for a Christmas dinner or for probably not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, but now they're kind of screwed because, you know, I don't know what the recall procedures are, but most people in this situation typically just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, you know, they got us a good, you know, they got us a good pay raise last time. So, you know, who cares? But this might be explosive enough that the next time there's an AGM, um, you know, you, you get a new slate of people elected. Um, but, but these things take time. And most people, if you're a working teacher or a working anything, you don't, you don't want to spend your time doing this stuff. You don't want to spend your time fighting your own union. And the emails I'm getting from teachers is really like, they're talking to me like, please don't use my name. Please don't say anything. If they even know that, um, that, that, that I even have thoughts against this new policy, you know, I could be investigated for, um, for being a racist. The, the new policies that have been implemented by the union and by the schools focus entirely on impact. So it doesn't matter what your intention is. And that means that you could say a word in a foreign language that, somebody may interpret as being a racist term in English, even though you're speaking, say, Chinese. This is actually <laughs> an example of this happened in the United States. Um, and because the impact was negative, you will be investigated and possibly even reprimanded as a, as a racist. And because this policy is shared by the schools in the union, there's now this like very blurry line about whether the union is on the side of the people who pay its, paid its dues uh, or the people on the other side of the bargaining table, because the bonds are tighter ideologically than they are in terms of the actual organizational mission of unions. It's a really, to, to my mind, like a really terrible indictment of, 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 of where unions are at in 2021. I mean, it's, it's actually quite frightening. I mean, let's, let's hope that this idea doesn't uh, the spread to, I don't know, uh, school boards. Um, well, it already has. And some, I mean, if you appeal, appeal district school board, uh, Ontario, like Toronto is, has gone completely nuts. And I don't know if you saw the story, but the um, superintendent of education in the Toronto District School Board canceled a, uh, a lecture by a woman who was an expert on the predations of ISIS, because according to the superintendent of education, it might pr pr promote Islamophobia. If this Nobel Prize winning woman who has documented the predations of ISIS were to speak to educators at the TDSB, Toronto District School Board. This was reported in the Global Mail last. Yes, I did see that story. It's an absolutely uh, shocking development. And they also blocked Marie Hanain, who yes. because probably one of the greatest lawyers in Canada and an inspiration to female law students everywhere and all law students everywhere, because she represented Gian Gomeshi and gave him his constitutionally uh, required right to a vigorous self-defense. It's there crazy. Anyways, Jonathan, it's um, uh, it is it, frightening times that we're living in. And uh, thank you so much for for bringing this one to our attention. I appreciate your time as always. Thank you, Jonathan Kay, Canadian editor with Quillette, host of the Quillette podcast, regular op-ed contributor to the National Post. All right. Back with uh, our small town family physician and lover of freedom, Dr. Patrick Phillips, with his lawyer, Michael Alexander in tow. Stay with us. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM.
Welcome back. Everyone knows that if you want to get stronger, you should exercise. And if you want to support your immune system response this season, take super strength oregano products from North American Herb and Spice. There's no substitute for super strength oregano, the original truly wild organic oregano oil oil that's produced by old fashioned steam distillation. Whether you prefer it as an oil or a vegan gel cap, it has the ingredients your body needs to help support a healthy immune response. Super strength oregano products from North American Herb and Spice are available at health food stores across the GTA or online at oregano.com. Visit the website. Sign up for the North American Herb and Spice newsletter and receive 5% off your online orders. The website again, oregano.com, O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L, O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L, O-R-E-G-A-N-O-L. Super strength oregano products from North American Herb and Spice at oregano.com. Dr. Patrick Phillips is our small town family and ER physician and lover of freedom. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. P underscore MD. Dr. Phillips, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing well. Can you give us an update on what's happening with the College of Physicians and Surgeons? They wanted to pull you before, I guess, a disciplinary hearing because they don't like the fact you're speaking out against the official COVID narrative and trying to provide informed consent and all of these things. I know you've been crowdfunding to raise money to, for a lawyer for your defense. What's happening? What's the latest? Yeah. So there's a number of things that have come up lately. Yes. So my, my crowdfunding is, is going really well. I think I'm at about $36,000, which is amazing. I'm, I'm really appreciative of all the support. I'm still continuing that. Well, I've uh, been offered for my case to be taken over by the JCCF. So I have a new lawyer now. It's uh, Michael Alexander with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and they've generously uh, agreed to take on my case as well. So that's also really helpful. That said, there's other legal costs that go be beyond just the, uh, the hiring of a lawyer because it's also all the court fees and all of those uh, things. And sometimes they award costs to the college. And so the JCCF is doing their own separate fundraising to to offer me pro bono legal services from now uh, forward. And but I'm still have to cover those other costs. So I, I'm really appreciative of all the all the support people are giving. The college themselves are actually making a move. They've uh, submitted an application to the court to basically forbid me from referring or speaking about my investigations. So they are filing with the Ontario Superior Court to basically refrain from me be, being able to post any investigational materials or even refer or use any of those investigational materials in any of by uh, public communications. So, so a gag order, a gag order in essence. Basically, yeah. So while they are allowed, they're claiming they're allowed to uh, kind of make their allegations against me and they've launched that whole media campaign against me. They're saying that I'm not allowed to comment or defend myself publicly, only before them. And so this actually isn't in the law itself. The call, they're, they're claiming under the Reg Registered Health Providers Act that the provision there saying that they are forbidden from actually commenting publicly on my investigation also applies to me. But actually, if you look specifically at the law, it does not say that the person under investigation has to be silent about their investigation as well. And when I speak about this, I want to be very clear that I'm not talking about like patient health information. None of my complaints at all were from, from patients. I'm not posting any confidential patient information. This is all around complaints from other physicians often or members of the public who uh, have complained about me, especially my, my public advocacy. So, so 
We, we are going to be challenging that in court, and hopefully I can continue to speak out publicly so people are aware of what these colleges are doing. So I think we do need to shine some light on their actions just so that the patients and the public can, can judge for themselves whether uh, they believe the colleges are protecting patients or if they're maybe just protecting themselves. Right. And just to be clear, so people understand, you are being censored by the College of Physicians and Surgeons. They are, again, they want to haul you before this disciplinary hearing. They're preventing you from writing out exemptions for the vaccine. They are preventing you from administering things like ivermectin. And they don't like the fact that you are advocating on behalf of patients for things like informed consent. You are upholding the Geneva Code, the Nuremberg Code the Hippocratic Oath, and that's why they're coming down so hard on you. What is your present employment status right now? Right now, I still have privileges at my local hospital, but I'm in a bit of a, a conflict with them right now under Directive 6. So I, I am objecting to some of the, the new provisions there where they are imposing a mandatory testing without informed consent. So I'm kind of in the process of sorting that out with them. So right now, I'm not I'll work now, but I'm going to be looking to probably set up a clinic once I've determined what my status of my license is going to be. The college has made a separate action as as well, actually, and where they're going to make a decision uh, around November 12th on whether or not they're going to suspend my license or impose additional restrictions on a separate matter that they may or may not refer to the tribunal. So I have multiple investigations around me. Their decision on my latest restrictions was on one investigation, and then they have a another investigation about my Twitter feed, basically, which is a separate somehow investigation. So they're going to decide whether or not they're going to put additional restrictions or suspend my license before the tribunal, because I still don't have a tribunal date. So this is just a, a separate investigation that they're going to against me. So I'm not really working right now, but I'm trying to figure it out. Give us the details on the crowdfunding campaign, please. Uh, yeah. So I'm using givesendgo.com. And if you put a forward slash Patrick Phillips MD, that's where my campaign is. So givesendgo.com. Yeah. All right. We'll take a quick time out, come back and discuss uh, some other items. Dr. Patrick Phillips at Dr. P underscore MD. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. We are back with Dr. Patrick Phillips. He joins us every week at this time. And you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. P underscore MD. And the crowdfunding campaign can be found at givesendgo.com givesendgo.com and look under uh, Dr. Patrick Phillips raising money for his legal defense against the College of Physicians and Surgeons. All right, I want to ask you, a recent press conference with Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's chief medical officer, and he was talking about vaccination rates in Ontario. I believe he said it was something like 77%. And then he said that there are two ways of acquiring immunity from COVID. One is the vaccine. And then he actually said out loud, Dr. Phillips, you can get immunity from a prior infection. And th- th- this is something we know. We, we know we've taken for granted. We've, we've known about this, you know, for a hundred years that a prior infection confers very robust immunity from these respiratory diseases. Everyone else seems to be in denial uh, in public health. He actually said it out loud. Did he inadvertently let that slip? What's going on there? Do you think? Clearly, it's a slip because he said the quiet part out loud, right, which is the longstanding basic, basic medical knowledge that you don't even need to be a 
doctor to know that prior to 2020, <laughs> previous infections with a disease gave you immunity to, to that disease. And that's something that we've known forever. The general population knows that. And yet, what's so enraging about this is that he has allowed thousands of nurses, of doctors, of uh, frontline workers throughout our economy and our province to be fired, to lose their job, to lose their basic rights without even being able to be tested to know if they have prior immunity from a previous infection. So he admitted out loud that there's tons of people now that he is denying uh, their basic uh, fundamental rights because who are immune to this disease from prior infection. And so I think that's what's so striking about this, that he said the quiet part out loud, that um, this does not correlate with medical knowledge or with any kind of medical reason for re- removing those people from society. And of course, we have a uh, travel ban at the end of this month. Again, I don't I don't think they're going to allow an exemption for a prior infection. We still have people denied access to many businesses, restaurants, gyms. Again, no exemption for a prior infection. What I think he's actually trying to do is quell people's upset about the fact that so many people who are vaccinated are getting the infection. So we're seeing this in other places where they're saying, oh, well, you're going to be have even more immune now after after getting the infection after being vaccinated I think that's that's why a lot of the talk is in the media about natural immunity that's starting to reemerge I, I think that would be wonderful if he starts to acknowledge that exception or, or that exemption but I think it's more that a lot of people are becoming much more upset about the so-called breakthrough cases. And so it's bringing up the idea of natural immunity rather than the fact that these are vaccine failures and that the vaccines are not nearly as effective as they said they were. I also want to get your reaction to the FDA panelists the other day. During the meeting, they voted 17 to zero to approve emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine for five to 11 year olds. This FDA panelist said that basically, I'm paraphrasing, we don't have enough safety data on the vaccine for this age group. So we're just going to have to roll it out and see what happens. In other words, we're going to roll the dice with five to 11 year olds and give them the vaccine. What did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, this is, again, saying the quiet part out loud that this is a a massive experiment on healthy children. Um, When you don't have the data, you don't put out like mRNA gene therapy. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. To children who are at no, um, uh, in not in any kind of position to benefit from this vaccine because the mortality and the harm from COVID is less than the flu. So 
what he's admitted essentially is that we need to start giving uh, well, what he said was that we need to start giving uh, out this vaccine to find out whether it's safe or not. He said that's what we did with uh, the vaccine previously, in which case we found blood clots and myocarditis as as the side effects after putting it out to market. So he's saying that we need to do that same thing. This is uh, experimentation on children, healthy children. Uh, it's unethical. It's wrong. Um, this is not the way that we uh, have ha- uh, carried out a vaccine safety in- ever uh in in north america um the way we do this is we do the experiments first and we only do experiments on people who are at uh uh in a position to benefit from that we don't give out uh harmful medications uh, or potentially harmful medications to uh healthy children when they're not even at risk from that disease. Uh, this is unthinkable, and, and honestly, it's unethical. And he's kind of admitted it when he when he's made that statement. Just a just a, a few minutes here. Just a quick comment from uh, you on this group of Alberta doctors that are claiming that Alberta health data shows a short term spike in COVID nineteen infections, hospitalizations, and deaths after vaccination for the virus. Yes, um, this is a, a well-known phenomenon. Um, this has uh, been seen in, in many countries throughout the world that uh, with the vaccine rollout, and particularly after the first dose, uh, your risk within that first 14 days uh, is significantly increased from baseline, meaning you're you're at higher risk of catching COVID after getting the vaccine than you are uh, if you didn't get vaccinated at all, the immunity starts to build up afterwards. But in that, that first two weeks, you're actually much more vulnerable. And so what they've found in some studies is that your CD8 T cells, actually, those levels go down as your immune system is attacking your own cells that are now producing spike protein. Uh, they are too busy to be able to fight off other infections. And so if you are exposed to COVID either before or in that short period after the vaccine, you're more, it's more likely to uh, reproduce produce and uh, become symptomatic. So this is um, uh, not a new phenomenon, uh, but they did see it in Alberta and it's definitely very concerning. All right. Well, we'll follow that one closely. Dr. Phillips, as always, we appreciate your uh, your time and uh, everything that you're doing. You've got, I know it must feel like you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders right now, but um, you're a fighter. We're behind you and uh, God bless you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Richard. Dr. Patrick Phillips, uh, follow him on Twitter at Dr. P underscore MD. And uh, the crowdfunding campaign can be found at givesendgo.com. Givesendgo.com, Dr. Patrick Phillips. All right. Uh, when we come back, well, hour two, plenty of shows still to come. We'll revisit an earlier conversation with Billboard Chris. Chris Elston, currently touring the United States with a sandwich board to raise awareness of a medical form of child abuse, children being placed on dangerous puberty blockers as a path to transition from one gender to another. And uh, also, investigative journalist Sam Cooper will be here to discuss money laundering and communist China's involvement in transnational criminal activities on Canadian soil. Hour two of The Richard Serrett Show gets started in about uh, five or six minutes. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. The Richard Serrett Show continues on Newstalk Saga 960 AM.
All right, welcome back. Hour two is uh, off and running for Monday, November the 22nd, a little bit later uh, this hour. Investigative journalist uh, Sam Cooper will be here, and uh, the book is called Willful Blindness. And uh, this is a fascinating story, and it's actually quite worrisome. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The extent of Communist China's uh, influence in Canada uh, it involves money laundering and uh, Communist China's involvement in transnational criminal activities right here on Canadian soil, in particular in Vancouver, where casinos were used to, dr- uh, to launder drug money. It's, uh, it's called the Vancouver model. And uh, this, uh, this technique, importing uh, fentanyl into Canada, laundering the money in casinos, this uh, technique was then exported to, uh, to other countries uh, like Australia and New Zealand. So um, Sam Cooper will be here and uh, Chris Elston standing by Billboard Chris. This is a previously recorded interview. Chris Elston, a.k.a. Billboard Chris is uh, traveling the United States right now, drawing attention to the medical abuse of children who experience what is often a temporary or even imagined gender dysphoria, who are then being subjected to uh, dangerous puberty blockers. And uh, we're delighted to have Chris Elston back on the program. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Thanks so much for having me again. Oh, my pleasure. And I'll keep having you on. Uh, because this is, you know, I was just talking to Senator Leo Hussakos, a quick aside, uh, about the, uh, the Uyghurs in, uh, in communist China. And he wants to ban products coming in from a particular province where they are enslaving Uyghurs, uh, this Muslim minority. The other thing they're doing to them is they're sterilizing them. They're forced sterilizing them. And Canadians, obviously, I, w- I would think unanimously would be appalled by that, but they might not be aware that we are allowing our own our young girls in this country to be sterilized. Tell me about that. That's right, girls and boys. So we have this extremely large increase in children wanting to transition to the other sex. And the main thing going on today is that we don't uh, provide these kids with a lot of counseling. We're not looking into underlying conditions that have caused this sudden increase in all these children wanting to transition. We just simply affirm them and very quickly put them on a regimen of puberty-blocking drugs and then the opposite sex is hormones. And 
when we do that, it causes infertility. So we're literally sterilizing a generation of gender non-conforming children, children who are having a tough time in life. A lot of these children would grow up to be gay or lesbian. And this is all being done without much questioning because to even talk about these issues gets you deemed a transphobe and everyone's afraid to talk about it. But I became aware of all this harm coming to thousands of kids and it really bothered me that we're not able to talk about such an important subject when all of these children are coming to harm. So I've set off on this mission. I've been traveling across Canada for over a year and I'm now going to be visiting different U.S. states every month just to create awareness and have conversations about what's going on because we need to get this discussion going on a national scale. Right. And uh, we talked about this, I guess it was last week, and I wanted to bring you back on because what we didn't I didn't have a chance to address with you the fact that, I mean, you were crisscrossing Canada. You were you were standing on the street, sometimes in front of a school to try to bring awareness to this. You had you had people coming up to you, uh, punching you physically uh, um, attacking you. And you stood there with your arms you know, behind your back. Uh, you did not re- respond in kind, which was an incredibly courageous and smart thing to do, obviously. You've taken so much abuse. Now you've decided to take this message to the United States. Uh, not that you've given up on Canada, but I sense there's some frustration. What's going on? Well, it's, it's strategic, really. I mean, it is frustrating in Canada because none of our media will cover this subject. They won't tell the truth about it. CTV, CBC, and Global are all three peas in a pod. And they all present this as some romantic notion of a child finding their authentic self. But they never address the experimental nature of these puberty-blocking drugs and cross-sex hormones. They never address why we've seen a 4,000% increase in young girls wanting to transition. And this is, in my opinion, a giant medical malpractice scandal, probably the biggest medical child abuse scandal in modern medicine history. And I know without a shadow of doubt in the coming decades, we're going to look back on this time with absolute horror and everyone's pretty much being silent about it. So the reason I went to a couple schools, stood on the street corners by a couple schools in Ontario last month, it started because at Beaumont Road Public School in the beaches area of Toronto, a 12-year-old child in the classroom recorded the teacher giving a lesson on gender identity, and that audio was leaked to me by the child's father. And it's just absolutely insane what these kids are being taught. And it's the last thing in the world I ever imagined myself doing, you know, wearing a sign, standing near a school to have conversations with parents. But this is where a lot of these problems are starting. We're indoctrinating children. We've brought political agendas into the schools themselves, And we're not teaching science-based materials to these children. These materials are produced by activists, political activists, who want to get this agenda into all of the schools. And we have thousands of children being indoctrinated. They're being lied to in the schools. And if we're not allowed to talk about it, if the media won't cover it, there's really only one way to do this, we figured out, which is just to go onto the street, go to busy areas, and have conversations with parents. And people tell me, well, you should go to the parliament and protest there. Well, I've done that 15 times. They say you should talk to school boards, talk to the politicians. I've done all of that. I've done everything there is to do. I've been out on the street probably 250 times in Canada for hours at a time, every time, having thousands of conversations. And none of the media 
will cover the truth of what's going on. Billboardchris.com, the website. We were talking earlier, Chris, you left, uh, you've left Canada temporarily. You're down in the U.S. taking the conversation down there with your sandwich board that reads, children cannot consent to puberty blockers. And I think um, well, the last uh, tweet I saw from you, you were inside the state legislature in Austin, Texas. How did that go? How were you received there? Yeah, I went to the Capitol in Austin, and I was going to stand outside. Um, it's a safe place to stand, there's security and things like that. But I went inside just to kind of look around, because it's a beautiful building. And I thought, well, I'm here, I'd better go inside and have a look. And I ended up speaking to one of the politicians in there, who stopped me to chat. And he told me I should come on inside the building <laughs> with my signs. And I couldn't believe it, because I'd never be allowed to do that in Canada. In fact, when I protest outside the BC legislature in Victoria, I'm not even allowed to go into the restaurant in the basement of that building after I've been protesting, even without my signs, until I've had a cool down period, they say, of a few hours. They do that for all of the protests, not just myself. But there's such a greater amount of freedom of speech down here. It's how the world should be. We should be allowed to have conversations about whatever issues we want to have, as long as we're being respectful and it's not hate speech, I guess. But um, it's nice to be in a country where freedom of speech is alive and well, because it's certainly not in Canada. You mentioned myself getting punched in the head and all that last month in Ontario. Uh, that was because a counter-protest of 200 students from Carleton University in Ottawa came out to mob me. I wasn't free to move I was getting mobbed, I got painted on, I got spat on, my rental car got keyed, I got punched in the head a couple times, and the police just watched. They literally just watched as it all went on. I had another man out there with me, and a woman as well, she got water poured on her. But uh, the man that was with me couldn't even get into my rental car because it was so surrounded. He had to climb in through the back seat where I had the seats folded down and kind of scrunch himself in there while my car was getting mobbed and kicked. And signs hammered onto the windows, and the police just watched it all happen. So, I mean, it's just a total embarrassment and a lack of proper policing, but it's fine. It ended up reaching millions. CBC and CTV and all them came out, and of course they don't report the truth. They largely report this as, you know, some transphobe coming from British Columbia. I had politicians calling me the bigot from British Columbia and slandering me on the floor of the legislature in Ontario. But what ends up happening is, a lie goes around the world really fast, but people end up going, hmm, something doesn't sound right here, and they end up doing their own research. And it achieved what I wanted to achieve, which was thousands or tens of thousands of conversations happening about this issue. So awareness is increasing. But I'm going to keep visiting different states each month, going on one trip each month, and I'll still be doing things in Canada, of course. But in the states, there's more conservative media who will cover this. There are podcasters who have hundreds of thousands or millions of followers and I'm making connections with them because they care a lot more, of course, when I'm doing this in their own country than when I'm doing it in Canada. And the whole Western world is in this fight together. So if we create more awareness in the U.S., it rubs off on Canada. And I think eventually once other countries fix this mess that we're in and stop this practice like Sweden and Finland have done, eventually Canada will be forced to act and they'll stop this practice too. But all these countries, all of the people who are speaking out against this, we all need to work together. So it's a global fight in a lot of ways. So I need to take it globally. 
I think that's a, a wise strategy, Chris, because Canada, unfortunately, always seems to be behind the curve uh, when it comes to just about everything. And uh, sometimes they don't uh, they don't, you know, come around until they feel secure enough to do it because they see other countries and uh, the United States, of course, uh, if they would come around on this issue, that would go a long way. Now, wh- what kind of reception do you receive from people on the street? Now, up here in Canada, you get accosted. Um, not every time you, there are some like-minded people up here, not nearly enough. What kind of reception, what kind of conversations are you having? Let's say recently in Austin, are, are people aware that this is going on? What do they say to you? People are becoming more aware all over the world, really. And, uh, I went and stood outside the university of Texas in Austin. People told me, be careful because Austin's a very woke town, <laughs> But they're not from Vancouver. (laughs) Vancouver is a very woke town. Victoria is totally insane when I do this. I get abused constantly. But down here, I mean, there was some hate from some of the university students, but even they were evil. They were able to have a conversation with me. They weren't so triggered that they couldn't talk to me, which is the case in Canada with a lot of the people who are against what I'm doing. But it's been overwhelmingly supportive. It's it's overwhelmingly supportive even in Canada. More than 90% of people agree with this. But it's just that the 10% or the 5% or even the 2% are very loud and very angry. And they scare everyone into silence. And you know how politicians are. Their main goal is getting reelected. So they're not going to do anything to act against this until they feel safe to do so. Because right now, even the politicians that know the truth of what's going on, they're very cowardly because they won't speak up. And they are sitting on their hands as thousands of children are coming to harm. And they won't do anything until they feel safe to do so. And the only way we get to that point is by creating so much awareness that they simply can't ignore it anymore. Because we need parents, we need teachers, we need principals, we need all these people to become aware of what this ideology is leading to. Because right now, with a total absence of truth being spoken, People think they're just being kind and they're just being inclusive and accepting. But it's not about that. It's about what this leads to medically, which is children suffering infertility, children having their breasts cut off when they're 14 years old, even without parental approval. And there's going to be deep regrets in a lot of these children when they grow up. And no one can explain why we've seen this 4,000% increase, but it's pretty simple. We're teaching it in school. Kids are getting groomed on social media. It's a fad. It's really popular now. Children who are struggling get rewarded socially when they come up with some new identity in high school. And we simply need to have conversations about this experimental practice going on. The president-elect of the the World Professional Association for Transgender Health herself, who is a trans woman, has said she's not a fan of giving puberty blockers to young children. And for some reason, we're not allowed to talk about this in Canada. So I'll just go wherever people will spread this message the most. And right well, now, you, you can come here and you can spread the message as often as you'd like, Chris. I think what you're doing is heroic. Uh, you're a selfless individual. And I applaud what you're doing. And I think you'd be interested to know uh, that on the 29th 
of this month. I, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Walt Heyer or Heyer, uh, who has a website called Sex Change Regret, will be um, on the program. This is a gentleman who, who lived, I believe, for something like, was it 20 years uh, as a yes, woman? I'm aware. And uh, I'm just, yeah, letting the audience know as well, of course, that uh, now, yeah. of course, like like so many of these uh, individuals has regrets and wants to draw attention to this. So so Walt will be on the program at the end of the month and we'll uh, we'll continue to keep this conversation going. And uh, Chris, again, you're welcome to come on the program anytime. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you later. All right. Chris Elson, billboardchris.com is the website. All right, back with Heroes and Villains on the other side. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Heroes and Villains. All right, just a villain today. I'm not even sure who this uh, individual is. I believe he's a politician. Uh, Well, he's from Australia. He may be... Uh, from the state of Victoria, which has had something like, what, six lockdowns, totaling nearly 260-some days since last March. Uh, I'm not sure if he's a a health uh, official or an elected official, but what he is for certain is a sociopath. Have a listen to this. If you are anti-mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. I don't care what your personal vaccination status is. If you support, champion, give a green light, give comfort to, support anybody who argues against the vaccine, you are an anti-vaxxer. Absolutely. Your personal vaccination status is utterly irrelevant. If you campaign against the mandate, if you campaign against people being vaccinated in vulnerable settings, teachers in classrooms, I'll be really clear, at that point in time, people are actually supporting the idea of a teacher being unvaccinated in a remote community classroom with kids who cannot be vaccinated. I reject that, I still reject it. And if you are out there in any way, shape or form campaigning against this mandate, you are absolutely anti-vax. If you say pro-persuasion, stuff it, shove it. We are absolutely gonna make sure as many territorials as possible are vaccinated. That is our best protection against this thing. And if you look at the Dolby model that's only come out since, that says if you double dose 80 in remote communities, five and up, I think you'll see our vaccine mandate is absolutely crucial to protecting life, particularly Aboriginal life. And I will never back away from supporting vaccines and anyone out there who comes for the mandate, you are anti-vax. How did this guy get get past the vetting system? Or don't they have a vetting system in Australia? Do they not do some sort of psychological profiling to prevent sociopaths like this from getting into positions of power? This man is certifiable. Absolutely certifiable. And uh, I don't know what his name is. I don't even, if I knew it, I wouldn't utter it. He's today's villain. All right. When we come back, Sam Cooper will be here, investigative journalist and the author of Willful Blindness. We'll talk about uh, money laundering in Canada and uh, the infiltration of the communist Chinese into this country, as well as a transnational criminal activities on Canadian soil. That conversation starts in about three minutes. Don't go away. 
The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. All right, as promised, Sam Cooper is uh, here, the author of Willful Blindness. In the book, Sam illustrates what security officials have been hesitant to share with Canadians until very recently, that Canada is a haven for nefarious national security and transnational organized crime networks. And he says, our democracy is at risk. Sam, welcome back. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thanks for having me back. My pleasure. Uh, so this story kind of begins in in uh, the early 1980s, just as Hong Kong was being transferred back to uh, communist China's control. Explain how that led to uh, unleashing all this criminal activity into places like Western Canada. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. And in a nutshell, uh, if I had to put everything into two words, it's called the United Front. And so uh, as, as most people know, China is a communist nation, but underwent uh, a lot of reforms in the early and, and late 80s where they, they wanted to transfer to a uh, sort of a hybrid capitalism model that is uh, it was, it's still a communist country but they wanted to trade with the rest of the world and, and saw the wealth being created so to jump to the point uh, the the paramount leader Deng Xiaoping uh, set up meetings uh, with the tycoons of Hong Kong uh, again many people know these are these are gentlemen that cr- uh, control much of Hong Kong's economy uh, names like Stanley Ho and Cheng Yutan. They also were deeply involved in uh, Macau casinos. And as my book shows, uh, it was an open secret in intelligence, that is Western intelligence, that these men, if not bosses of uh, transnational gangs, if not involved directly in uh, smuggling activities, were directly associated with gangs who were using the casinos to uh, to launder heroin proceeds uh, and and really move the funds around the world and that's what my book got into how these uh, these funds from drugs are moved into Canada and moved around the world and how especially uh, places like Vancouver and the suburb of Richmond or Markham Ontario outside of Toronto have become hubs of this. Macau casino activity. But uh, to, to get to the political point here, the United Front is a tool used by the very top levels of the Communist Party in which uh, deals are struck uh, back to Hong Kong, Deng Xiaoping. It's reported uh, in my book from intelligence sources had uh, made a deal with these tycoons where they would be able to uh, profit very handsomely in deals uh, with with China's uh, elite. And uh, if if they would show uh, China's elite how to also trade with the rest of the world, because, of course, the Hong Kong tycoons had some connections and some trust with Western capitalists. But the real dark side here is that, uh, again, the tycoons, some of them, my sources indicate, and uh, there's reporting on this, are themselves bosses of criminal gangs. Uh, All the tycoons do business together. And so the United Front bonds uh, tycoons with connections to organized crime. It bonds Chinese intelligence handlers, uh, the People's Liberation Army, all the powerful forces of China 
bonded together to do the Communist Party's political work around the world. And what my book really revealed and got into is how uh, the underworld of crime does bond with uh, with what appear to be very wealthy and legitimate uh, uh, persons who, under the surface, uh, are not so legitimate because they are indeed working with Chinese intelligence and the party in the West. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The communist Chinese regime, do they see these drug cartels and let's say, you know, this, the, the flood of fentanyl into into Canada and the opioid crisis that we have here, there were, were, like something like 20 Canadians uh, die every day from opioid toxicity. And I don't know how much of that is related to the fentanyl that's coming in from China. But um, does the does the Chinese communist Chinese regime see the fentanyl and 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 the fostering of this opioid crisis as an extension of their foreign policy in order, in other words, a means to an end, which is, you know, total communist Chinese uh, domination of the world. This is a, a very, I would say, advanced uh, area of intelligence assessment and research. I'll be completely upfront. I have never seen the document, and it would be very hard to to believe that uh, it would be you know allowed to leak. But I've never seen a document that says the Communist Party indeed would like to see Western nations suffer from opioid addictions and would like to see you know massive healthcare funds diverted to to, to treating just this horrific uh, crisis. Yet. Uh, there's reporting that uh, powers such as Hezbollah, which is essentially state-sponsored Iranian crime, do use drugs and see them not only as a method to raise uh, raise funds for for arms and to move arms around the world, but do but do like to see Western cities suffer uh, and and uh, and lose money, lose lives due to opioids or or those kinds of you know very hard drugs. So I'll tell you, uh, my answer is this. I have a number of um, uh, current national security, that is active national security, you know, intelligence type sources. And the assessment from them is that you just cannot look at how uh, China controls all the factories where the opium, uh, sorry, the fentanyl precursors are produced. through corruption and connections to organized crime, uh, Chinese officials are connected to these factories and the drug gangs using them. And so it's just impossible for the people that I talk to to conceive that China is not turning a blind eye 
to the fentanyl and enjoying the profits from, you know, these massive uh, chemical businesses. Uh, are they looking at uh, the, the mounting death totals in a city like Vancouver? We've heard recently, uh, we know the reporting, it's gone up during the pandemic, the opioid deaths. Do they want to see those deaths happen? I know some people that say they believe, just like Hezbollah, that China is using that uh, is using that as sort of what is called a, a tool of hybrid warfare. Let me stress again, uh, in my way of reporting, I would like to see the documentation similar to the, the documentation we've seen on, you know, the atrocities in Xinjiang, uh, that this is, you know, a genocide, a planned genocide. I haven't seen that level of document, but putting the facts together and talking to the people that that should know they say it's likely that is happening that is china is using fentanyl against the west all right sam take a, we'll take a quick time out come back and uh, continue to discuss the book is willful blindness a network of narcos tycoons uh, and communist in, uh, agents infiltrated the west back with more of our conversation in three minutes just having a little chin wag on the richard Serrett show news talk saga 960 a.m Investigative journalist Sam Cooper, the author of Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. Um, so you write in the book that, that Vancouver has become um, sort of the, uh, the headquarters for corporate and industrial espionage by the communist Chinese. You call it the uh, the Vancouver model. Explain how this this model works of money laundering, drug money, casinos, etc. That's right. So it, it all relates to casinos and real estate activity. Uh, in simple terms, uh, uh, your listeners know that enormous, uh, as we've indicated, wealth was created in China from the 1980s, and uh, really the very peak of the, uh, the the pyramid of the elite in China benefited by far the most uh, from that creation of wealth. And so a lot of officials or, or people that got close to officials in business relationships have been exporting uh, that wealth around the world through underground methods for, for decades. Uh, again, uh, China is trying to stop that in certain ways. So uh, at least they don't want the average people exporting their wealth. So there's a $50,000 per year capital export limit, but that uh, is very easy to get around by going to casinos around the world. So the Vancouver model is simply a way of uh, getting your wealth in China into cities like Vancouver through casinos. How does it work? You make uh, you meet uh, in a Macau casino is how it works. You met uh, a very you know prolific gang of loan sharks from Vancouver that are connected to Chinese transnational gangs. They would say you're gambling in Macau. You can come to Vancouver and do the same thing. So you will give us that is a, a drug trafficking organization. Let's say a equivalent of a five hundred thousand dollar deposit in a Chinese bank. Again, this is a bank account uh, owned by drug dealers. Then you, so that, there's your credit. You travel to Vancouver, uh, the gangster or the gangster's uh, money mule or, or, or staff will meet you in a parking lot, um, most usually outside Richmond's River Rock Casino and give you $500,000 in uh, cash. The catch here is it's drug cash. It's drug cash earned by this very same Chinese uh, drug trafficking organization from moving fentanyl into Canada. So uh, from there, of course, 
you know, it, it's not easy to take that money to a bank, but it was easy to take it into the casino, cash in uh, $500,000 worth of 20s for your casino chips, and you're uh, off to the races, as it were. Uh, let's say you, uh, you, you've cleaned your $20, your $500,000 worth of $20 bills. That's drug cash. You could get back $100 bills. This is, uh, you've now passed, uh, when you cash out, you've passed Canada's mon- anti-money laundering controls. Uh, of course, the trick is that the money laundering controls weren't even there. The casino was not following the law of, of flagging what anyone could see is a drug sort of cash transaction. But uh, to jump to the chase, once you've cashed out uh, your chips, you can get a hundred stacks of hundred dollar bills or uh, a check. And then that's your down payment on a home in Vancouver. So of course it gets a lot more complicated, but what you've done is you've deposited with a drug trafficking organization in China and they've paid you out and the casino lets you launder the money in Vancouver. Or it could go and most often did go once the path was really paved the other way. That is, the uh, the wealthy uh, official in China could just travel to Vancouver and take out a loan and pay it back again the same way, take out a $500,000 uh, loan, uh, a hockey bag of $20 bills, gamble to your heart's content, and then pay back the gangster in uh, in China from your bank account in China to his bank account. And so the gangster has is earning some interest on that, and he has washed his proceeds and moved these drug trafficking proceeds from Vancouver back to China where more fentanyl can be produced. So that's, in a nutshell, the Vancouver model dirty money loop. That Vancouver model uh, uh, been been moved to Toronto, Montreal, Edmonton, across the country? It's uh, My reporting shows that that very exact model uh, is very strong in Toronto. Again, Markham, Ontario, I reported that... Uh, a gang called the company that is uh, what's reported to be uh, the largest really uh, perhaps the largest if not one of the largest narco uh, cartels in the world is very strongly based in Markham Ontario and Vancouver uh, Richmond Burnaby in British Columbia and this comes from RCMP documents that came out in BC's money laundering inquiry after my book was published the documents fully corroborate uh, of course, I knew of these documents, but they this is now public record. Your listeners can go to the Cullen Commission website and and see the documents that say these high level some of the highest level professional money laundering services in the world are run out of Ontario and British Columbia, moving money not just for Chinese transnational crime but Mexican and Colombian cartels. Uh, Iranian state-sponsored crime. So uh, some of the largest money laundering operations in the world run out of Ontario and British Columbia. This is the Vancouver model, but let's call it the Markham model as well, because I, I, you're, some of your listeners may have seen the reports of these illegal casino mansions in Markham. That is very directly connected to uh, what I have exposed in the Vancouver government casinos and illegal casinos. Same network, same operations. No wonder our five eyes are allies are giving us the cold shoulder uh we'll uh, take another time out sam uh, cooper stays with us a few minutes uh, remain back with more of our conversation in three minutes let's rejoin the conversation on the richard serrett show on news talk saga 960 a.m a few minutes remain with sam cooper investigative journalist author of willful blindness 
how a network of narcos, tycoons, and CCP agents infiltrated the West. Uh, Sam, tell me uh, about Cameron Ortiz, uh, one of our, our spy chiefs who was, um, I guess, arrested back in 2019 by the RCMP. Yes, uh, a shocking case. Uh, Ortiz uh, was a, a brilliant academic, is a brilliant academic, uh, who, who was educated in the University of British Columbia and uh, wrote a, a masterful, groundbreaking thesis called, uh, well, talking about compromised nodes, the connection uh, connections between cyber criminals and transnational state-sponsored crime. And uh, he... he uh, uh, reported this thesis through access to uh, officials in China, which is quite interesting to me. I, I just lay that out uh, the groundwork for for what happened and and what I look at as a theory, perhaps, and when I talk about his case in the book. But his uh, he he will finally be going to trial on a, a number of serious indictments. Uh, it should be early of next year. Uh, I I don't know that he has even denied the allegations. I've tried to reach him. Uh, through his lawyer and, and, and tried to reach him directly, but I haven't heard back. I, I just say that for legal reasons. But what we do know about the charges against him, it's alleged that he was selling Canada's uh, top RCMP targeting plans of uh, in Toronto, uh, some, some people connected to currency exchanges and allegedly connected to Iranian state-sponsored crime networks. Uh, so these would be some of the alleged uh, biggest money laundering networks in the world that Ortis allegedly was selling the RCMP's plans. But really, uh, the FBI and uh, Australian Federal Police's plans, because this was a Five Eyes targeting operation. So that's one of the serious sets of charges where he allegedly tried to profit for himself by selling to, uh, to criminals, helping them to try to essentially, uh, the allegation is offering them some protection. The other side of uh, his case is that he was allegedly offering the same services to uh, some people involved in encryption technology companies, right. which were, again, facilitating some of the top-level gangsters and cartels in the world. So uh, those, those are the, 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 the nutshell is that he was seeking a profit, but what my book looks at is the theory that perhaps there was more to it. He could have been systematically trying to uh, really gut Canada's intelligence capacity for the RCMP because he had the top job. So, so what is the, I guess, the, the, the takeaway here that these, these criminal, uh, these Chinese transnational criminal organizations uh, have gained protection from the RCMP? That could be that could be part of the Ortis case. Uh, that that is one very serious alleged bad apple. I'm not saying it goes deeper than that, but I, I am saying, you know, through my sources, that organizations such as the RCMP at any institution in Canada is at risk of infiltration and corruption from these United Front networks that I'm talking about. And uh, because they, on the surface, they don't look like espionage operations, but my book shows uh, uh, in Toronto and in Vancouver, our current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, at so-called cash for access political donation meetings. And I can point, he's surrounded by alleged uh, 
money laundering operatives in real estate and casinos. So this can be proven visually and with documents that, you know, people that are connected to the Chinese Communist Party and connected to an espionage and, and, and influence operation are trying to get next to our highest level politicians, uh, bureaucrats, and of course they would try to get next to and, and, and influence law enforcement types as well. So uh, speaking of influence, and I, I'm not saying that there's a connection here, but I just I find it interesting. We had two daily newspapers in Toronto the other day that were publishing paid advertisements, paid ad, ad content. You know, these ads that are meant to look like a news, an, an actual newspaper story uh, printed in, in two daily newspapers uh, from the, the communist Chinese. We have uh, a, a, a senator in Canada who um, on any given day sounds more like a, a mouthpiece for the communist Chinese. I mean, is this the type of influence that we're talking about? I mean, could this, this Vancouver model, for example, translate into this kind of influence, whether it's in our daily newspapers, whether it's in the, the corridors of political power, like a senator? I'd like to break my answer down into to three sections because I don't want to confuse the issue uh, with the newspapers uh, that that you look, I don't want to throw rocks at a fellow uh, journalist, but you're right. Uh, it's a very troubling situation, perhaps a, a sign of the times where newspapers are struggling to to uh, to pay their reporters and, and bring in income that they would run uh, what can only be called advertorial for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, does that involve influence at all? I would hate to think so. And I, I don't know that that could be the case at all. But look, it, it clearly it's Ron. You should not be running Chinese propaganda in your pages that, you know, that can't happen. <laughs> Where's the CRTC on that? Uh, the second point is that, look, um, my information is that uh, Western intelligence, Canadian intelligence is concerned about some captured elites. That is that is politicians, uh, whether elected or not elected at very high levels, uh, doing the bidding, whether it just be speaking, clearly speaking the line of Beijing or or more secretive types of dealings. So, yes, that type of influence and corruption is happening, according to my sources. And uh, as you've laid out, some people that, that would seem to be speaking for another government, uh, that speaks for itself. Uh, the third the, the third point would be, uh, look, I, I pointed uh, in, a, in, in a chapter called Strike Back Hard to uh, media act. I'll just call them uh, powerful media figures in British Columbia. What I what I indicated were, you know, United Front leaders uh, and, and both of these uh, types rubbing shoulders with Canadian elite leaders and rubbing shoulders with what I proved and showed through documents are high level organized crime targets. And. I can I, I I know that people are looking at the last federal election and that some of these people in the media or the United Front seems to be trying to influence and quite quite possibly successfully flipped a couple of ridings in Canada. So I, I really like to bring it full circle that when I'm pointing to the United Front and organized crime, there is a direct political threat connection. And uh, uh, I'll be working more on, on that type of story because I do think, look, I've talked to politicians that are very, very concerned with what they saw in the last federal election. 
Well, Sam, um, God bless you. There's um, not too many Canadian journalists that are, uh, you know, covering this issue and uh, thank God for you. So you're welcome on this program anytime. And we're most anxious to see the results of uh, your further investigations. Thanks again. Thanks. Great talking. Likewise. Sam Cooper, Willful Blindness. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, and Brandon. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. The Brian Crombie Hour is next. Be well, find joy, hold fast, be kind, but push back. I'll speak with you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Tuesday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.